not using yeah. that real name or something. Yeah, in... you're lucky because your name already seems fake. I know, well, mate. I know. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We were actually going to ask you, like, what? How would you like us to broach the subject of Jack Black? Like, would you prefer a joke or? <laughs> right, I'm, I'm more than happy to take a joke. I think. Yeah, we were joking that... that it's, it's similar to your experience of the racist joke, uh, with your coworker, like. Like there's that risk involved in making a joke about your name, like not knowing how you'll receive it. No, I know. And it's amazing how people completely utterly like cock it up as well. So like I've had people like obviously clearly not very bright people say like, were you named after him type thing? Like <laughs> I'm like, well, no, the years don't work out. Plus yeah. no, that's not the case. But do you know what's even more frightening about our name connection? What's that? Is that we actually share the same birthday as well. No Whoa. way. <laughs> Okay, that's, that's so weird. That's pretty trippy. Weird. I know. Isn't that, isn't that <laughs> that's weird? That's like so, a Jungian archetype shit. I know. I know. And there's only the only way I can relate to it is in that purely Zizekian way that I sort of, in that sort of, I've accepted my own alienation by the fact yeah. that even my name doesn't belong to me. I remember we were, um, <laughs> I was listening to, I think, the White Theory podcast and Ryan Engley was saying about, I think there was an example where Ryan Engley said about how he moved school and he didn't want to be put in a class with someone else called Ryan because his name belonged to him. Yeah. And I was always like, well, try having like a name yeah. <laughs> It will never we, be yours. <laughs> we were joking that it's like first as first, then as tragedy. Yeah, <laughs> my my friend works at a at a bar, and I was sitting I was sitting on the counter. He was serving me, and it had the the menu up on behind the bar, and it said Austin Powers. I was like, "Why does it say Austin Powers up there?" And he was like, "That is that's the name of the guy that owns the bar." And I just thought that was the most deeply unfortunate name. Yeah, I think there there, <laughs> there is there are worse names. Like, yeah, I mean, we had um, remember the local tattoo artist in my town was called Harry Potter. Oh, <laughs> worse, which is a lot worse, I think. Like, that is worse. You know, apart from being called, I don't know, like Adolf or so, I don't know, like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Harry, Harry Inkblotter or something. <laughs> yeah. Nice one. That's pretty nice. good. Thanks. So, so you're a professor at uh, Sheffield. Yes. Yeah. We don't, uh, yeah. We're a uh, senior lecturer as well. Yeah, senior lecturer. Um, you have to, right. you have to. I don't know, show blood to be a professor. Okay. <laughs> and you teach, yeah, yeah. You teach um, um, physical, what, what is it? Yeah, yeah. My background's really odd. So my background's actually in sport. Um, so I teach in a sport department. When I say my background, my undergrad was in sport. Um, so I'm, I teach as part of a sport department. But my mm. research really from sort of my master's onwards has always always been based around the media. So I've taught in media departments before. Um, 
but uh, obviously when needed to get a job after PhD, ended up uh, working at Sheffield Hallam in the sports department there. But I teach um, I teach uh, an intro to sort of to sociology and philosophy module as part of a physical education degree. And I also teach research methods as well. So even then, sort of my stuff isn't isn't really explicitly sport anymore. And so how did you make the, the transition into like writing about Zizek and psychoanalysis? As you know, I, I've been asked that before. It got to, uh, it got to about when would I start? I think I first started reading Zizek around just I think it was about 2017, 2018, and it was no little, little yeah, 26 between 2016 and 2018, I started reading Zizek, and it was purely a boredom out of social theory. But also, he, he was a name that people kept saying, "Have you read this fella? Like, you know, have you read have you read Zizek and whatnot?" And I think particularly, he seemed to sort of escalate massively after 2010 I think in sort of in sort of wider recognition and I think that was when it's definitely sort of YouTube videos and whatnot you know I remember I do remember trying to read Plague of Fantasies during my PhD and just having to put it down because I thought this is this is crackers um <laughs> I remember thinking that I'm just not mature enough to be reading this at the minute um so it was I don't know if it was after that it was always on the back of my mind at some point I thought I'm gonna have to return to him and then but I started with the sublime object of ideology and uh well the world was never the same again right i'm sure we've all had that experience definitely for sure so like you you've you've sort of honed in on comedy and like when you know when when we're first coming into jizek's work i think one of the standout things about him is that he's funny and he tells jokes yes um yeah so like maybe maybe you could talk a little bit about the role of comedy in jizek's work Yes. Well, I, I think it's well it's central, as you've sort of already highlighted there, and it's a key part. I think what I like about the comedy of Zizek is that um, on one level, it makes him very approachable because he'll sort of, you know, he'll start off with this joke. But the sort of the beauty of Zizek, and I find this, I find this, um, you know, def- definitely a, a beauty to his work. And I say that deliberately is that it performs what it is he's trying to say as part of the theory. So, for instance, mm-hmm. if you're trying to understand concrete universal, if you're under- trying to understand dialectics, if you're trying to understand parallax and then the numerous other terms and you know Lacanian terminology um, that, and as well as his own that draw from that, you, you're sort of getting that in the example, the comic example. So I think it's and I think when when people struggle with Zizek, I think it's because they're expecting the introduction of an, you know I introduce this issue, here's an example, here's the critique of it, but that sort of gets jumbled up a little bit when Zizek gives stuff because he'll sort of slam you with this example and then another example and then another example. And then by the end, you're like, oh, God, because this is what he's saying regarding, I don't know, dialectics or, or, or something along along those lines. So um, you can't separate, I think, comedy from Zizek. And I think I think that works both for and against him in many ways as well. Mm. It undermines the kind of seriousness that people tend to think of academics by. And then because of that, they almost want to dismiss him because yes, he's not definitely. serious enough. Definitely. And the yes. best and and, I, I, you know, it's something that is te- integral to Zizek. But look at all of like. You know the good writers from say from the from, from you know his Lacanian school or whatnot. They all use comedies. Uh, Zupanjit uses it. I mean, Todd McGowan sounds hilarious. I think sometimes you know when when you're reading some of his examples and the way he draws upon stuff. You know, sounds you know he's using comedy. You know, for those mm-hmm. purposes. And so I think it's it's there. I think you have got to be a good writer. You need to be a bit funny. Um, 
which is a problem in my books. I often wonder it's not very funny. I'm using other people's jokes. I think, I think the, the, the phenomenalness of someone like Todd McGowan is that he actually comes up with his own jokes as part, which <laughs> to me is like the extra level of intelligence, you know. Well, he's a, maybe he's a dad. I don't know if you're a father, but maybe. He's, no, he's... I'm not. No, that's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. the, the dad part's interesting, right? Like if Zizek wasn't a dad, there's no way that he would be talking about Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right, definitely yeah and then although although then the mystery of you know has he watched it i love that i think it was in an interview uh, yeah he asked about um he was asked about uh what was it the, the the one about black panther i think yeah was it black yeah black panther definitely uh what was the it's the one about blue people david cameron uh, not david cameron oh, uh, david avatar cameron. avatar yeah and i think he was like no good god i've not watched that film like it's like i um, get the gist whatever yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he doesn't want it. He doesn't want the movie to actually conflict with a good theory about it or something. Yes. yes. Yeah, that's the point, right? Don't don't let um, reality interfere with a good theory. Definitely. M- make yeah. reality <laughs> apply to it. And one but, of the claims of your book, one of the things themes that you're exploring in your book is that comedy actually has something to say about philosophy and subjectivity, even questions of ontology. So, yeah. like, without yeah. just going you know, all the way to the end, I mean, like, what can you say about comedy and philosophy, maybe? Yeah, I think I think the two things, you know, ontology and subjectivity. Yes, I think comedy can definitely say something about. I think um, um, there's a bit in the book where I talk about. Um, uh, I draw upon it specifically on the sections on parallax, where we talk about the one, the one being divided. And I think what what comedy does is it provides us, you know, a good, a good comic, a good joke or a good comic performance provides a bit of a twist or mm-hmm. um, or it exposes that gap that is then for related, therefore related to both the subject and ontology. So I remember, and I think that again comes back, you know, I remember, I remember reading about the Concrete Universal before Elenka Shapanjik's book uh, uh, on comedy and not understanding it until I had her comic examples. And I think, so that's the beauty, I think. And, and, that's, and that's perhaps where I think the, it helps philosophy. Yeah, and that's where Zizek, st- sorry, I'll let one of you guys jump in in a sec, but like that's where Zizek describes, you know, the, the coincidence of concrete and universal always with a joke like the rabinovich joke right yeah yes yeah uh the yeah the, the parallax the, the the shift in perspective of the joke but also that shift in perspective being kind of an ontological claim like yes you, you made an interesting like comment on like the risk of a joke and um last summer we were talking about uh Zizek's book on hegel and a wired brain and yes we were talking about how like we were having a kind of skepticism about if a computer could be funny. And that's, mm-hmm. that's almost an ontological claim because there needs to be kind of inconsistency in order for there to be a joke. Yeah. Yeah. There needs to be that inconsistency. Um, apologies. My cat wants to join ah, me. Um, what's the little uh, fellow's name? Yeah. Uh, this, uh, this is Kate. Nice. Cool. Uh, <laughs> the, people always laugh at the name that we called her Kate, but her brother's called that's Sawyer. Good. So I don't know if there's a TV reference there, which some people might get Kate and Sawyer. <laughs> I thought it might be like a Royal thing, you know, cause you're, Oh, you're, good. You're, <laughs> You're, you're, you have a dog named like the like the Dutch of Windsor or something. Like oh, that. good. No, Michael. No, unfortunately, that's a burden that I think me and Michael have to share in, uh, in having the same head of state there. Well, so do we. We're oh, Canadian, Canadian, of course. Yes, this is a Commonwealth yeah. experience we're yeah. sharing right yeah. now. And we are expecting you to apologize. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll post that. Um, yeah. Sorry. Uh, the question. Sorry. What uh, you were saying there about um, oh the computer. Well, see, this is so that's an interesting. I remember I remember hearing that when when you spoke about it, and I thought. You know, can the can the computer ever get the inconsistency um, that that I'm talking there about with regards to to something being funny and that mm-hmm. being sort of a comic mode? 
But then I suppose that, again, brings us back to this notion of the concrete universal, because a computer would be funny when its own compute, its own lack of its own inability to display that inconsistency becomes performed, if you know what I mean. So I'm so kind of like, a laugh at scenario rather than a laugh with. Yes. Yeah. 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 Like right. there was that one computer that was like that was like, I'm going I'm going to kill you or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Like like right. Out, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so and how that gets performed, I think, is quite interesting. So, um. Yeah. And I think this, I mean, this comes back to a lot of comment. I mean, uh, if you think about the idea of Henri Bergson and stuff, when he, he talks about something I talk about a little bit in the book about the idea of someone acting machine-like is when they become funny. I mean, there's modern times, Charlie mm-hmm. Chaplin, it's, it is a funny scene. You have to giggle. I mean, I'm thinking here, Mark, Mark Zuckerberg comes across as one of the, you yeah. know, as robotic. I mean, uh-huh. um, I mean, I do, you know, to think of Terminator, I think he is sent from the, is, yeah, so <laughs> you, what's that? gap between being machine like and over identification yeah yeah i think that's, they're close yes i think I, it comes and i think it comes back to that minimal difference i think i think you know if a machine the subject is inconsistent the subject is inherently that gap that void so i think that minimal difference that comedy is therefore is inherent to the subject in that respect and that that, that through comedy the subject can be performed um now whether or not yeah, at what point I think that gets reflected in the machines, I think is a really interesting example. There needs to always be a subject, I think, involved in some sort of way. Uh, the show wasn't great. You're probably a- aware of it. Um, but there was a there was a skit. There was a show in the UK called Little Britain. Um, where, yeah. yeah, where the woman, I think the woman's uh, working at, a, you know, a desk and the, someone asks her something and she'd be like, computer says no, uh, because she's like putting the information into the computer. And then the sort of the comic, you know, the comic the comedy, the scene was that her, every reply would be the computer says no. Um, so in the sense, she performed the computer's role through her own sort of detached, her own sort of actions in that respect. So, I mean, can a computer ever be funny? Probably not, because it will always need yeah. that subject. subject uh, another way I'm thinking, it uh, comes to mind is like, a lot of comedy has to do with the unexpected. Yes. Uh, have, like, like one, and then, but a computer, it's, it's basically entirely oriented around what is predictable. Yeah. Yeah. So what you're saying is timing, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. where, where it gets punctuated. Mm-hmm. Or, or it's an unexpectedness that, that I think this is something, you know, that um, Subhanjik talks really well about the idea of, uh, you know, uh, of, of, of inconsistency. And it's an unexpectedness that was always expected, if that makes. I think that's the key. But it wasn't that I just came out of the blue and was funny. I think yep. you, knew it, you knew it was there, but you didn't expect it type thing. I think. And that's, because that's when someone... Yeah, because when someone is like really effusive and like like trying to be funny, there's like their gap. It's like it seems to have like a put on. Whereas like if something kind of organically just like pops up and and says it, and it it makes sense within the within the new coordinates of of the situation after you've told the joke. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, the notion of retroactivity would be really interesting. I think there, the fact that it perhaps redefine, you know, resymbolizes what would be a good. Good example. I think that notion, I think that relates quite nicely to ideas. The idea of trying to be funny is something that I think conservative comedy is, you know, the false comedy it's, might. Uh, maybe you could get into the distinction there, actually, between like what you call false and true comedy. Or, is there, or are those uh, Zupanchiches? These are Zupanchiches. Yeah, yeah. I, this is a complete and utter. Yeah, the, the, the book, I think I said this in almost every interview I've done. Don't go read Alenka's book first and then, and then because Alenka's is, I read hers and it was the only, and then this book. Emerged. Yeah, well, well, we actually tried booking her first. Right, okay. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> what about okay, Todd's book on comedy, Jack? Say again, sorry. Todd's book on comedy. 
Yes. So you yeah. read Zapantages. Oh, Todd's. that's very apologies. Yes, then I, yeah. So I read Zapantages and then I read Todd's. And I've never, they, hadn't, I, they hadn't done it well enough, so you take a crack at it. Well, well, well. You know what bothers me? Like, so I am. You know, I wouldn't be able to work without Todd McGowan's work or thinking. The you know, the man is 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 brilliant. Someone said to me on Twitter the other day that um, he he delivers bangers like he's commented upon the weather or something or other. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. This, this is an extremely like pro Todd McGowan podcast. Yeah, I want to yeah, make that entirely very, yeah, very, very pro Todd. Yeah. I mean, good company. But the one thing that I would I would love to, and I've never met Todd McGowan, I've never spoken to him. Um, perhaps this is a slight attempt to <laughs> notice me, Todd. Please, uh, Todd, if, Todd, if you're out there, uh, well, we love yeah. you. Uh, Jack um, loves you. Tally uh, lessons, but yeah. <laughs> is, is Todd never mentions the Concrete Universal in 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 any of his writing on universality? Um, really? And he, he provides. Yeah, he I, never, I did it today. Well, you noticed it that. No, I, I searched through all of his right. work today. Wow. Yeah. That's really surprising. And he has a comment on Zupanjik's book in his book on comedy. And it's quite, um, if I remember rightly, I've, I, read, I read his book on comedy a while back. It, it was, it was, I think it's more of a critique. And he sort of skips past it quite, clear, quite quickly. So for me, it was a case of, you know, you've got this one great book, Elenka Zupanjik's book on comedy, and you've got another great book, Todd McGowan's. But, you, you know, I think they're quite... They're disparate, you know, they don't work in that respect. You know, they don't, they're not. So I was, I think my book, if anything, was trying to, I'm not trying to say I'm trying to bring those two authors together because they are inherently together. But I, mm-hmm. I, I always found that odd, you know, why, why the lack of the concrete universal? Um, and obviously Tom McGowan was making the argument, he focuses more on lack and excess, mm-hmm. uh, which is obviously something that I use in the, in the book as well. But to me, it can be used alongside the concrete universal i think we can probably move on to this later but i think this comes out in the relationship between the master signifier and the universal which obviously todd mcgowan's written a lot on cool so maybe yeah we can revisit the concept of true and false comedy after yes that. Yeah. yeah so these these are distinctions that alenka zupanjik uh, uses and essentially um uh, false comedy follows a conservative path um so one and, and and true comedy doesn't do that. True comedy, I suppose, in, in many respects, can, is is more radical or perhaps to use a, a bigger word, you know, more emancipatory in, in those instances. So when she makes this distinction between true and false comedy, she draws fundamentally to to the Baron who slipped on in a puddle or a banana peel or or, or whatnot. And this is the sort of the, the joke that a Baron is walking along the pavement say you know he slips on a banana peel he falls into a puddle ha 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 the baron is just like everybody else any human being can walk along the path slip on the banana peel and you know and 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 look silly um and that's an example of what she says is false comedy because she says the true comedy is not the fact that he can fall in a puddle just like everybody else and we can all share in comedy it's the fact that he gets up and still walks and gets up dusts himself down and carries on walking along the pavement believing he is a baron in that so it's yeah. so the comedy mm-hmm. lies in the fact that he presumptuously believes he is a baron um um so it's the baron title which is which is the comic mm-hmm. the, the sense of comedy there so true comedy comes out there in in the baron in in laughing at the universal title the baron mm-hmm. that's what's funny the fact that we have barons or that somebody would believe themselves to be a baron yeah right right so and, with the baron you know that he's not a baron, but does he know that he's not a baron? Right. Yes. Yeah. That's where the comedy ensues, right? Exactly. Yes. And I think this comes out, you see this, uh, she relates it a lot, obviously, that I think her book was written 2000, um, uh, 2008, I think. Um, and 
uh, she, she relates it a lot to um, like George W. Bush, that uh, George, you know, it became a bit of a media strategy for him to make these mistakes because mm. people thought, oh, you know, you know, poor old George making another mistake. But the comedy was the fact that, you know, this was a president making. This is a man who believed himself to be a president. This was the right. man who had, you know, the keys to the nuclear bombs and whatnot. That's what makes him good. The fact that he was the president is, is the comedy there. I mean, right. is, well, we wanted to yeah, yeah. This, the UK with Boris Johnson at the minute, you know, mm-hmm. you know uh-huh. the Tories love to make, you know, haha, you silly old fool, uh, Boris Johnson, but the man's the prime minister. Good God. Like that's, that's the real funny bit. Yeah. Well, we, speaking of barons and presidents, Baron Trump, president Trump, uh, is there, <laughs> is there like, because we were before the before we were talking, we were we were trying to like deconstruct like exactly what is funny about Trump, and like there is that element of conservative comedy or, or uh, false comedy about him, but there is also uh, a very ambiguous relationship that he has with comedy because yeah. he himself is funny, yeah, and and that we so, have in you know in being spectators to that, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and I'm just wondering maybe the line between like. Like, can we think of like false comedy being like, like is comedy only to be seen as either true or false? Is there, is there comedy like in general? And then maybe it can also be understood in those ways and can be, can false comedy be, if, if it's seen from a different perspective, be true comedy in a sense? I think, uh, yeah. And that's a great point to make because I think I even say in the book, I did not want the book to be you know, this is good comedy, this is bad comedy in any mm-hmm. way. And I think, you know, when you start, then you start talking about true comedy and false comedy, I think, mm-hmm. I think you know, you fall into perhaps the habit of, of saying this is good and this is bad. And I don't think uh, Alenka Shupanjik is doing that either when she employs those terms. I think you're right. I think there might be some sort of general form of comedy. But what I think the true and and false comedy distinctions draw attention to is, is they sort of, they lay up the concrete universal in that respect. They show mm-hmm. you, they, they provide a way of entering into see how, these universal notions become uh, become concretized, you know, to, to use the, the phrases there, mm-hmm. how it's the inconsistency of the universal that is performed through a particular example, um, which is really interesting. I mean, the example, I mean, Trump, Trump's, a, Trump's a, like you said, he has this quite brilliant relationship to, to a certain extent with, with comedy, because I found myself laughing at Trump, you know, from the things he said before. Yeah, um, yeah. My, my, the favourite one, my, and again, you know, this is why I think comedy is great, you know, gives us these examples to sit back and analyse. And I can't remember if I used this example before, but I remember when um, they were talking about, I think it was it, it, it was when Meghan and Harry had gone to the US and Meghan had done something mental that everybody thought was mm-hmm. regarded as against, you know, this slight against the royal family. And they asked Donald Trump for his opinion. And his reply was, all, all I would say to Harry is good luck. <laughs> 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 Which is like the most horrifically sex, you know, as if to be like, good luck with that woman. <laughs> the most horrifically sexist, misogynist thing to say. I heard it, I think I heard it on the radio. And it was one of those where I stopped and laughed and then was like, oh, God. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm laughing at Donald Trump. But I think there was something, you know, you know, I would, you know, I'd go as far to say I think the best role we've ever had, and I'm a Republican here, is is Harry. That ironically, in leaving the royal family, he's become more of a royal in that respect. So I don't know. Perhaps yeah, 
good luck, Harry, because <laughs> right half there. I think my, perhaps there's some truth there in Donald Trump's. And of course, Harry wouldn't be life. anything worthy of noticing if he wasn't himself a royal. The very thing no. he's trying to get away from. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, nice. Yeah. There's probably there's probably some. I only, I always thought there's a good Hegelian. You know, when Hegel talks about the monarch and whatnot, you know, signaling signaling the contradiction. I always thought, my God, have we reached that point with Harry Windsor? <laughs> Right. <laughs> I, I can be a monarchist through Harry, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. You don't watch the uh, the American office, do you? Or you haven't? No, no, okay. no, I know. That's an that's a that's that's an error on my behalf because yeah, um yeah, because people after that always comes because obviously the book focuses specifically on the UK one. Uh of course. But I am I I I'm aware of it. I do think the first don't the first two seasons of, of the US office closely follow the UK one. So I always wondered yeah. if this was replicated this because obviously the joke I analyze in the book mm. is from the second season of the first episode of the UK. So I always wondered if there was a sort of comparable example. Can you theorize the repetition? I, I yeah, I think I think that idea of something, yeah. I, I think what's I think the, the repetition there would be interesting is if it is repeated. There is the, in a way it is actually right. Uh, Michael tries to do the Chris Rock bit about uh brothers and N-words. Right, and, yeah. And he he so he starts imitating Chris Rock's voice and then like actually does the joke. Yes, right, okay. And then gets in trouble for it. And it's a whole it's the whole like like human resources thing and, and similarly. And the way it works. So is there the entrance? Is it the same? Do you still? Because obviously the U, the the comedy of the UK episode is the fact that Oliver the black co- the black colleague enters. I think yeah, there is a there is a black a new right. black. See, colleague, that's really yeah. interesting. That's really interesting. I remember hearing an example. I think it's interesting that the Chris Rock example there is used because I remember um, uh, again I, I, uh, to refer to another um, podcast. Apologies, but I think in in the White Theory episode where they talk about comedy. Uh, Tom McGowan draws upon the example of Zach Galifianakis, who went up to Chris Rock and admired Chris Rock, but just so his his idea was to go up to Chris Rock and say the most racist joke that he could think of. Um, but I think that fails. I think that's different to what perhaps gets performed in the office because you've, I know you've essentially just got a white man there telling the black man his racist joke, which I think is not what happens in in the scenes. That's true. Yeah, you're office. right. Yeah. Um, which is which is interesting, but yeah, I, I still I and I think I think they use it as an example of why racist comedy can't be used. And I'm a bit like, oh, I don't know. I think I think it can with with these sort of yeah. theoretical. Right. Maybe yeah. maybe in just to explain to to flesh out the earlier uh, uh, dichotomy we were drawing between false and true comedy. Maybe we could speak to true comedy in that sense. Yes, yeah, because like comedy is you know like your book is is trying to get to this this thing that comedy is doing right like it's not it's not just that a joke is funny yes right? no yeah yeah and it's and it it's if, it, if it's just funny for for certain for certain reasons then it can be itself kind of counterproductive in terms of what we might think of as the subversion of comedy no definitely um so i think yeah so the true true comedy is essentially you know my interpretation of it is it is essentially the, the concrete universal and how that's enacted. Now, I think I think this is perhaps my guess would be that perhaps one of the reasons why Todd McGowan doesn't use the concrete universal is I think he's 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 spoken and written quite critically before about against subversion, against how uh, subversion. And I can see where he's getting at because subversion essentially means you kind of it's it's there in his critique of the master signifier and Lacal's work that you to critique to subvert something you need to accept that it exists. If you know what I mean, so you're kind of accepting its power. 
and and then do you ever really escape from its power because that's kind of how ideology works is mm-hmm. it always leaves that space for itself to be subverted um and i think that's something that that's something i sort of i've sort of theoretically gone backwards and forwards with because for me there is a value in true comedy and then what it enacts is this concrete universal where through a particular example the the universal is shown to be false or the universal is shown to be driven by a particular perspective mm-hmm. so i think whereas todd mcgowan i 100 agree talks about the universal being an absence uh, and it's it's uh, it's sharing what we don't have uh, we share the absence so to speak i think that what comedy is good is it does have this subversive potential because it shows the ridiculousness of of a particular perspective a particular opinion it shows how this universal notion is founded upon what what it excludes and that's an important part Absolutely, of it. yeah it's inclusion. This, I, this one thing I use in the book to try and elaborate upon this a bit more. And again, this is where I find it difficult to. This is where I try and align perhaps uh, Lenka Shupanjit's Concrete Universal and Todd McGowan's work. Is that Todd McGowan? He talks about it in his book, but he'd written it on a paper as well. He compares Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing there is, whereas Charlie Chaplin is is excluded from the social order, he's the tramp, so to speak, and that's where the comedy lies. Buster Keaton's comedy comes from his included exclusion. So Buster Keaton often succeeds within the social order, but it's through the su- his success he then he can never he's never fulfilled. He's always excluded as part of it. So hmm. I think there's a an an, uh, an example where uh, he he achieves. I think it's in one of his films where um, he achieves some sort of status and he can finally kiss the girl, but he can never kiss the girl because he's got to shake everybody's hands because he's achieved. <laughs> status. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The general. The general, that's it. Yes. Yeah, so, so the comedy there is from the fact that he that he's included, but he's excluded. And for me, that's a good example. That's what I was kind of getting at with the concrete universal, that it sort of it provides that sort of parallax, um, that that change of perspective that where, you know, you, you can start to see that there are false universals. And I think that's where I sort of made the link there with political correctness. The political correctness yeah. is false. The false universal, universal being identity, for instance. Yes. Yeah. Or, or a false universal being driven by a particularity. Okay. Right. A particular identity, maybe. Yeah. So, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So, so you, you get focused. So the particular is, so the particular is masquerading as a universal there. And mm-hmm. the only, so I, I, I agree that, you know, using the Hegelian, you know, terms there that we end up with the singular universal. But for me, I like this idea that to get to the singular universal, this point of absence, you need the concrete universal there first. And it's that which sort of, I know. Okay, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Between McGowan and and Tupantrich. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, mm. so, so, you know, the universal was brought back down to earth in, in Tupantrich's work through the concrete universal. Do we maybe have an example? So, the example that you're drawing on is the racist joke in the office. Maybe yes. we should explain that to yes. tie to tie that together. Yeah. So there's so it's as I said, it's episode um, one of season two. And uh, just, you know, a bit of context to the episode. This episode, I think it's called Merger. It is called Merger. Uh, and what you've got, you've got the Slough Branch, which is where um, uh, uh, David Brent works, uh, played by Ricky Gervais. And it's merging with another branch from the country. So they're sort of merging these two branches together. And as part of the episode, Ricky Gervais, as, as the manager of these two branches now, has to do a, a sort of a bit of a, he has to do a bit of an introduction, a talk to him all. And obviously, because it's David Brent, he comes with a lot, you know, he wants to, he wants to, he thinks he's a comedian. Mm-hmm. He wants to put on, you know, a bit of a comedy show as part of it. 
Um, so I think in the original, so there's four scenes where this sort of, this gets played out, which I analyze in the book. And in the first scene, um, he talks about, uh, he, he's saying how he's going to do a bit of, he's got some jokes in there. He's talking to Gareth and Tim. Um, and it's the, the scenes involving those three characters, obviously three white men. And, and Gareth says, I've got a joke you can use. And then that's when he begins to, to tell the joke. Um, and the joke is that the Royal family, Christ, was that the third time Royal family has been mentioned in the city. <laughs> <laughs> but this is actually that, also a Royalist podcast. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it will. So, the royal family are paying, I think, is it 20 questions or something at Christmas? And, you know, one person thinks of something and you've got to get to the what they're thinking of within 20 questions. And the sort of uh, the nature of the joke is, is that the the queen uh, is thinking about a black man's cock and everybody asks some, you know, a different question. And I think, you know, uh, is it bigger than the bread bin? Can I put it in my mouth? And then by the third and without any delay, uh, the queen says, oh, is it a black man's cock? So, so you get this, you get clearly a racist joke performed and that, and you get that performed by uh, Gareth to Ricky, uh, to David Brent and, and Tim, the other character. And then it carries on. And I think that's, it's the repetition of it over the next few uh-huh. scenes, which becomes really crucial and really important because when you've got Gareth, the joke's clearly racist. Um, I remember, I remember watching that episode live when I was younger and, you know, uncomfortable because I knew it was a racist joke. But and David Brent saying, you know, you know, is it racist type thing or and he's clearly looking at the camera. He's trying to yeah. perform a politically correct, you know, performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By finding, but he also therefore finds the joke very, very funny. Clearly, um, so he does his stand up routine. It fails, and then he's basically after that they're sort of milling about in the office, having sharing you know drinks, sort of meeting each other and discussing. And because his comic routine was such a failure, he goes, "This is a joke I should have used." And he therefore mm. tells the racist joke. So he's sort of intelligent enough note to know not to use the joke in the actual performance he gives. But then he repeats it to a group of colleagues as part of this second scene. And then the postmodern boss move in a way. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Look, look, guys, this is what I should have told you. Yeah. Yeah. And then just before he says the punchline, when he repeats the joke, Oliver, the black colleague, sort of enters the group and he immediately stops and he's sort of like, he won't, he won't say the punchline. So you're laughing at the fact Oliver appears. Yeah, you're laughing at the, the fact that yeah. he's awkward in saying it. Yeah, and the, the, the parallax, the concrete universal was enacted, in my opinion, in that second scene where you get Oliver, you know, say, well, you know, were you telling a joke? And, and Enrique says, yeah, 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 that was it. And someone said, well, what was the punch? You know, what, what, what was the punchline? And Enrique goes, oh, no, that doesn't need to be said. And think something else and said, and Oliver says, oh, is it the one about the, you know, the royal family? He goes, oh, it's the one about the black man's cock. So he sort of finishes the joke. Yeah, and he re- and it's almost repeating the Queen in how fast he gets the punchline yes. of the joke. Yeah, yeah. So these again, that these layers of repetition in it are really funny. And I think what's interesting there is you you know it's coming. I think this is what I meant earlier when you said there about the unexpected is that we've already heard the joke. We know right. we know what's going to happen, um, and all we actually get is this. All we actually really get is the black man finish the joke. To that extent and then it's and then it's carried on as david and david brent then the funniness comes from the fact that he's like you know well done good you know thank you for finishing the joke and well done for not finding it racist type thing and then that gets played out and then there's two subsequent scenes after that which then play out his sort of him trying to defend the joke as right. not being racist um, and i think an example you also use is like the the, the joining between the, the particular and the universal there is like there's the instance of telling the joke and yet when 
the the colleague enters it's like the entrance of this kind of the 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 kind of specter of racism yes like, yeah. playing out yeah so for me i think i think the the, the universal is played out there and that david brent thinks he's being politically correct he congratulates oliver on telling the joke he carries on thinking that he is politically correct he carries on thinking that the joke's funny um i suppose oliver in that respect is 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 the slip in the puddle the fact he enters and he's able to finish the joke right so what you're laughing at in the joke is not necessarily you're not laughing at the black man you're not laughing at the racist joke. You're laughing at David Brent's presumptuousness, his idea that mm. he believes he's being politically correct. Yeah, he, and that's his performance of political correctness. Yes. So it's like it's it's like we're laughing at the Baron or something, right? Yeah. 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 Which yes, you're you're laughing, you're laughing at you know, you're laughing at the Baron thinking he's a baron. You're laughing yeah. at David Brent thinking yeah. he's performing his political correctness. Now, for me, the, the, that was just, you know, when I was able to make those connections, I thought, well, this is quite unique because I'm not, you know, political correctness is a swamp that you can either, you know, you're either politically correct or you're not politically correct. And it gets brilliantly used by the right. They managed to control yeah. that because it's a yeah. debate about particularity, about identity, like you said. Mm-hmm. And what this did was showed how something like political correctness can be subverted without losing political correctness. I think that's, you know, without being racist, like you can yes. laugh at it without being racist. Yeah. 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 I, I've recently been watching um, Nathan for you. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. No. Is that new? Or... Uh, it was came out in like the, the early for like 2012 to 2015, something like that. Right. Um, highly recommend. I, highly, highly recommend that. Is show. it called Nathan for you? Yeah. Um, it's. Uh, without going too far into it, it's a, it's a guy, this this Canadian Jewish guy from Vancouver who um yeah he's he graduated from business school with with, in his words with really good grades he's he sort of comes up with these crackpot schemes to to make businesses more popular and not more profitable but more popular like he has this deep (laughs) this is very expressed need to be loved by people and and to be seen as a good person and as as a worthy person of their affection um there's this one where he's trying to get more business for a nail salon and he thinks that if they have a valet service then, then they'll draw more customers in. But he notices that when he's he's using the the estheticians, are they the nail people? Anyway, the people that do the nails, he's doubling them as valets. It's these these Asian women, yeah. And he notices that the the women who are coming to get their nails done uh, seem to not really trust these Asian women behind the wheel of their car. Clear, I would have to do something to change these customers' long-held beliefs. So I went online and found an Asian stunt driver named Farina May who could do some pretty impressive stuff with a car. And I felt that if she could stand in as one of our valets, customers would finally see the truth about what Asians can do behind the wheel. Yeah. Um, in, in his eyes, this is like, this is a wonderfully uh, sort of liberal, multiculturalist yeah. thing that yeah. he's doing. He's showing people the the error of their ways by by this great example of, of driver, of, uh, driving excellence. Yep. So uh, he hires a stunt driver and he's, he's talking to her and he's, he, he thinks that, sorry, this is going on a long time. No, 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 carry on, keep going. I was, I was worried about that. When, uh, this is why we need to go watch these examples if anyone was listening. Yeah, You're good, explaining yeah. this really well, Will. Yeah, no, okay. keep going. I, would, I feel like okay. we're getting I need, yeah. Okay, here's the punchline. So he thinks that to, to fully sell this, the, the stunt driver that he's hired, who's an American woman, uh, should have an Asian accent. And so she's like, I'm not really sure what you mean by an Asian accent. Uh, and he's like, okay, well, I mean, if you want, I can show you. Um, but, but before, 
before I do this, I, you know, like he, he starts to do this whole song and dance that lasts for like an absurdly long. It's like a third of the joke. It's him doing this whole thing about how he doesn't want to offend her and he's not racist and that uh, he's not sure if this is actually it is, but, but maybe blah, blah, blah. Um, and she's like, okay, you know, give it a shot. And then he just comes out with the, the most over the top racist impression of an Asian person <laughs> you could possibly imagine. And it's hilarious. Yeah. Right. And at first it's like, okay, is this, is this a racist joke? Right. But it's clearly not what he's doing. I think is what you're pointing out is showing the, the, the contradictions and limits of like the purely uh, multiculturalist, like sort of acceptance, like, Oh, if we can just have the representation of the drivers and everything will be, will be cured. Yeah. That sounds like a brilliant example. I think, I think what you said there about this idea of it being, it's clearly a false universal is being enacted there when you said there about how, He's trying to show that even you know, everybody can be good. Look, we're all good drivers under this yeah. false universal that we can all be good drivers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is it? I think. I think again. I think this was again the beauty of drawing upon you know someone like Todd McGowan and Alenka Shupanjik. I mean, the excess there. So, so, so Todd McGowan says that the comedy occurs when you get the conjunction of lack and excess. So when the two meet. So I think what's interesting there is through through an if you had an excessive gesture, if you had a Say, for instance, you had somebody excessively perform a racist stereotype, then then there's then there's two ways that can go, because, OK, yes, obviously it's it's clearly racist, but perhaps there's something there about the fact that from their own lack of awareness, that's where the comedy lies. There's that lack of awareness from the Baron that right. be a Baron is ridiculous. Right. Is that lack of awareness in David's excessiveness to you know, that's the reason why I examined the four scenes, because the joke, the, the funny stuff happens in the first two, but in the third and fourth um, is, is he's, he excessively maintains this. It's not racist. Keep going. It's, you know, it's not racist. It's fine type thing. And he ends up making more politically incorrect jokes through the process. So he ends up making a, a homosexual joke. Um, uh, he ends up, you know, I think at one point, you know, he's saying to him, you know, he, he wants to know who who found the joke racist type thing. And it turns out it's a white woman. He's like, well, that's, you know, you can't because you're not. Yeah, black. right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Woman in the wheelchair. Yeah. The woman in the wheelchair. You know, have you seen this the, little the guy with the withered hand? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you get all, so it never stops. So I think I think it's again, perhaps there's something there about, the, you know, his lack of awareness is what makes the the performance of the racist stereotype. Right. So, so to understand, so, you know. It's a racist stereotype. It's racism. I'm not denying that racism obviously doesn't exist, but it's to see the split. I think it's that inconsistency as well, which is really important there. I always had at the back of my mind, I remember a a sort of social psychologist in the UK, Michael Billig, did something similar where he explored racist jokes and he went to KKK websites and analysed the racist jokes on a KKK website. And his big conclusion was they're racist. And I was just always like, well, okay. yes, yes. Nice if we're going to find racism, we'll find it on the KKK. Website. <laughs> but, that, but that was like getting into a sort of bad and good, you know, pile right. of yeah, yeah. bad jokes. And I was like, yeah, they are bad. They are bad. And perhaps we should therefore just ignore them and never repeat those ones. But there are opportunities perhaps to show where comedy can enact this parallax, this, this, this. I, yeah. I like how in that Nathan Fielder joke, how um, it kind of displays what actually you pointed out as Zizek point, Zizek's point about the kind of patronizing attitude of of the white liberals who nonetheless sort of maintain their their role and power. Yeah. They sort of yeah. just purely by identifying the fact that there that there's racism, he can proceed with his own. In well, this case, brilliant. extremely exaggerated. 
And the, the, the brilliant ending to it is he gets her to try it. And then right, she yes. starts doing an imitation of the of the accent as oh, well. Right. So, so it's an Asian woman imitating. Yeah, she's yeah. an American Asian woman doing right. an imitation of a of an Asian woman. Right. In, yeah. With the exact with a very similar voice that he did. Right. So that's I mean, that's the minimal diff. Yeah, that's this sounds like a brilliant example. Yeah. yeah. The minimal difference, the sort of yeah, uh the the, the yeah. The same, but not the same type thing. I yeah. Guess. Um, um and, and shows maybe the limits of basing a comedy on identity. Uh, and I also wanted to ask, like, okay, so we've talked about false true and then maybe emancipatory or like an example of like how to kind of subvert the notion of a racist joke. But what about politically correct comedy? Like, I almost understand that as false comedy, but I'm just wondering what you would think of that. Okay. Yeah. So this is. So, I mean, I suppose it's what you're defining as politically correct comedy. And I think, I think. Uh, what's okay. We actually, before uh, uh, Michael, uh, Hannah. The Gadsby. Gadsby. You know, it's Netflix special. And it was really popular a year or two ago. And basically all she does on stage is moralize for like an hour and a half. Yeah. Okay. And it's like yeah. extremely unfunny. Yes. Yeah. Because everything she's saying is, is what she should be saying. Okay. Yeah. And, and we can freely say that on this podcast, but does it come with a sense that if you criticize her, you're in some way oh, yeah. wrong yourself? Big time. Yeah. We have something. I actually am I'm thinking that as we speak. I'm, yeah. I'm horrified. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Will is leaning back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm going to leave. <laughs> yeah. we, have, we have something similar um, uh, in the UK called The Last Leg, which is a Channel 4, which is actually these names gone from my mind, but it's hosted by an Australian um, uh, 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 comedian. And it's essentially, uh, it's, it's three fellas, two of them are disabled. And it's like a Friday sort of, you know, a Friday night channel four comedy where they sort of, uh, they sort of make fun of the week. So I suppose it's similar to like, like a, um, a John Oliver type show from the US or, you know, uh, I can't remember how many they are now, all the other ones and whatnot. Yeah. They sort you, of as a sidebar, which you have, have come out, saying uh you don't you don't get john oliver you don't like john oliver john oliver john stewart what is it about those guys that you think might be i think we can call that false comedy can we yeah i think they're unfunny yes. for the same reason yeah that that'd be your political correct they would be political yeah, correct. yeah, yeah exactly yeah it's exactly the same it's sort of um yeah, it's just, it's just, just, I don't know. Yeah, it's just, it's moralizing. It's, 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 it, it falls into that trap of um, making fun of politicians in a sense that politicians quite like. Um, yeah. Because um, it, it keeps them in power. It, for yeah. me, brilliantly performed more recently, not necessarily in a, well, is it, well, it is a comic performance, would be in the um, the film, you know, Don't Look Up, where you've oh, got yeah. Mark, Mark yeah. Rylance performing as, as an amalgamation of what, of like, of, of Zuckerberg, Bezos, you know, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, Elon Musk mm-hmm. and everybody on that Twitter was like, wow, what a wonderful performance, you know, Mark Rylance and everything. And OK, yeah, it's a, it's a terrific performance. and It's very funny to watch. But but they like that. As I said, I think if, if you're laughing at their at them, then they're winning. If that makes mm-hmm. sense, you need to be laughing at the fact that this is you need to be laughing at the fact that someone like Elon Musk is in that position not elon elon musk is oh, yeah he could be someone else point. yeah that's a great yeah, I, well have a billionaire and oh. I, something i wanted to add was like it's almost as if they don't those sorts of approaches to comedy don't trust the audience to not be racist so they have to like like just just so everyone is very aware 
we're we're supposed to laugh at this, so we're not supposed to yeah. laugh at that. It it doesn't yeah. trust the interpretation. Whereas the racist joke, like take the the risk of it is that it could either be understood or could not be understood. Yeah. So it requires a position. I think even more of a position yeah. than what the politically correct position is trying yeah. to put you in. Type. Thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, it, so it comes across as neutral, I suppose, that politically correct. It, it, it was politically neutral, despite the fact that mm, it's yeah. a political point. Yeah. The, the, um, all, it's like, for example, all the all the late night shows in the US are, are basically like completely in lockstep with the Democratic Party. Yes. Yeah. Which, you know, which I, is I funny, thought, right? Because sorry, like yeah. the with the White House correspondence dinners, the idea about it being politically neutral, it was only under Trump that he wouldn't attend those white house correspondence dinners mm-hmm. right yeah the only other person was nixon because he'd been shot and i think <laughs> it was clinton and they got aretha franklin as a performer instead of a comedian that's interesting. so that that idea of being able to um to take a joke to not take yourself seriously there has to be some um minimal withdrawal like some minimal distance between you and your identity or you and your symbolic mandate yeah mm-hmm. which trump was not able to but i i think i actually think that it was a it was a, a interesting move that he didn't do it because he w- it was like an overt recognition that what was happening in there you know for in every other instance like obama being a, a good example was was total false comedy mm, mm, mm. And in a way, like that position, symbolic position, which which sort of elbows you and winks, like Zizek talks about with the with the sergeant, the drill sergeant or the, you know, the military commander who who makes the dirty jokes and and thus sort of maintains his role, maintains the structure of that of that situation through those kind of of like mm-hmm. minor subversions and jokes. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, because the idea is that if you can participate in some sort of transgressive joke, you create a community. What was the word they used? It was like um, mirth or something. Like the idea that when you tell a joke, it it produces a kind of intimacy in its audience. Yes. Jack? Yeah. Yeah. So that's this is int- I think this is quite an interesting example. So you've got so you, so I think I think this and this might be some of the danger. This might be some of the perhaps the danger in the argument I make that someone like like McGowan might point to is that we, we'd have to be on the side of Trump, wouldn't we? Surely for not attending. Yeah. Those, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. But but you know but Trump isn't attending them. Um, isn't not attending in order to show the ridiculousness of the event. He's doing it because. He's trying to maintain basically personal re- personal reasons. Like yeah, yeah, yeah that he probably doesn't treated very unfairly. Yeah, he wouldn't be able to. Be able <laughs> to the most unfair. Yeah, so he wouldn't be able the to. The most that. unfair. <laughs> so the comedy becomes the event, not I think, yeah. Maybe some other category exists where you can find Trump, you know, disgusting, but also find that funny, and it's just a hard gray area, like you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's what happened with me when he said the joke there about Harry. You know, you know, good luck. You know, he didn't. <laughs> yeah. He came out and no, no, it didn't. It didn't really make sense in like he was being asked on like, and he just went. All I would say to Prince Harry is good luck with that. You know, good, you're gonna have a, and a, a, perhaps that it's that's that dangerous sort of awkward zone it puts you in. But it actually says more, I think, perhaps in that regard. But the Murph, the Murph example you drew upon, I think is a really interesting one because yeah, I think. I think that's something, I mean, that comes out with sort of, uh, Zizek often refers to that, the idea, you know, that you share a dirty joke in order to create some form of mirth or camaraderie. And I think, um, 
you know, I think that's definitely, that's something I've sort of lived with. I've experienced that throughout my life that even, you know, you might have pet names for each other and whatnot, but you know, the closest one to you can use that funny pet name. But if for instance, a random person was to say it, it'd be the ultimate offense. So I think, and I think that gets lost a little bit. It gets lost in the politically correct arguments, but it also gets lost, I think, a bit more in, in general comedy studies. Mm-hmm. I, actually, that? I just wanted to ask one question. You touched on it earlier, but um, it's a word that you use, but uh, in, in the book Subversive, and you've, you've already t- you mentioned how, how Todd sort of d- draws some skepticism about that term. Um, but it's like, I think, I think it kind of, for me at least, it, it does have a lot to do with how we think about comedy is that like can we use a word i think you mentioned a word like emancipatory or or like radical i mean what would that look like in terms of comedy is it is it just these examples that are sort of re-articulated sort of parallaxed through this different interpretation um or is it a different kind of comedy yeah that's that's really interesting so i think i think the way i've sort of so I've often thought that. So I've often thought like you have this great comedy example, which which shows everything, shows you the concrete universal. It subverts, you know, you've just given that example there from uh, from the TV show, um, which brilliantly, you know, perf- you know, for the performance of a racist stereotype, not only undermines the stereotype, but also undermines, say, the politically correct initiative that they were trying to do. But I suppose I suppose what you're getting at there is where does that leave us with? Like what are we left with in, in that in that moment? Um, I think that's. That's beyond beyond a different perspective on on what came before. I think I think that's you know where I would drink bring it back to some sort of retroactive resignification that oh, yeah you know what come before has never has never been the same again. I watched that you know that the, the joke the David Brent you know the, the office joke that I analysed. I remember I remembered it and I you know up until you know until I wrote the book I'd never forgotten that racist joke. So. I think it, it re-signified you know, what, how we approach and how we think about mm. later on when I had the theoretical language to do so. But it re-signified you know, what, what we were talking about there. And I think you know, it's exposing that absence. I think this is something that you know, Todd McGowan often talks about, you know, to refer to him again, this, this idea that the universal becomes apparent in the absence. But the second it becomes apparent, then it becomes, then we've lost it type thing. So it's a, constant, it's a fight for the universal through absence, through negation. Right. So I guess uh, in in distinction from like having a good moral or something or like teaching you some kind of teaching you something out of a joke, you there's this there's this like emphasis on the formal elements of a joke that can yeah. that can kind of transform our our perception of a given situation. It, it would teach or like you a, nothing. Our role in a situation or something. Right. It, yeah. But it would teach you nothing. But but nothing's the same anymore. But you've learned some of uh-huh. yeah. yeah. I think I think this is something that particularly like applications of psychoanalysis are fantastic at. It's this idea, you know, this idea of the impossible, this idea of um uh I think it's there a little bit. It's something I've I've working on um on another project. I think it's there a little bit in Robert Fowler's notion of interpassivity. Mm-hmm. Sort of like we share you share this space where nothing, you know, nothing's really changed, but everything's changed in that in that moment. You've got a different theoretical outlook you've got a different idea i think to come it back to this idea that you know who needs reality when you've got a good theory that to me would be that is what a good comedy or a true comedy would enact is that yeah and surely because your theory's changed on it you, you've, you're not even thinking in the same way anymore yeah and surely that shift in understanding reality the world via comedy is itself a kind of emancipatory act and yes yeah 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 enjoy the music for a minute
Yo. By the way, I don't think we said it, but if your writing is very clear, and you have a you have a lot of ease with the with the concepts, and you can re- yeah. you can sort of like condense them very well, which is a rare yeah. rare That's talent, great. I think, with these really things. Great. Wow, brilliant! Thanks, boys. Yeah, I really, that. really enjoyed said yeah. that because that is yeah, that's that's. Thank you ever so much. Good, yeah, thanks brilliant. for lending you so much time. It was really great talking to you. No worries, no worries. Um, good. Yeah, I'll speak to you soon. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. Soon. Stay in contact. Yeah, thanks all. Bye. 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 Cheers, Cheers, man. Man.